politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and scorned taxpayers to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house here at Blaze Media to give you, the true independent conservative, some sort of representation, some sort of voice that is not being heard. And if there is ever a time where our voice is not being heard, it's at these stupid showboating confirmation hearings for Supreme Court. You basically have two liberal parties and a kabuki theater with a nominee, whoever the nominee is, it doesn't matter, where it's just a waste of time. I honestly feel dumber and more exhausted from watching it. So I got all the way through Grassley, who is, he's just insufferable to listen to, and then he sounds like a liberal. And then once I burned my brain cells listening to him, they called up Leahy, and I was like, I'm out of here. I'm just going to record the show for today because I can't I can't take it anymore. Um, I'm actually behind on my work because I was just listening to the hearing and it slowed me down in all my other progress. But I think there's a number of points. There are a number of points that are worth making uh, just based on on what I've heard so far, which is not much. It's going to go on for hours upon hours. And that is everyone is missing the point about the Supreme Court. You know, you watch the Democrats and they are so concerned. They're like, well, I mean, I need to know where are you on Obergefell? Where are you on Roe? Where are you on, on uh, you know, the Obamacare case? Where are you on Citizens United? Where are you on Heller? And they're right. They should be concerned. Maybe she will be the fifth vote. As we should be concerned that we want her to vote the way that they fear she might vote. We're concerned, too, that we don't know for sure. And I must say, unlike the other recent nominees going back through John Roberts and certainly Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, where I downright had negative vibes. Here, it's just blah. I mean, she's just obviously being very cagey as any nominee in this environment is going to be. I think we need to break that mold. But until we do, that's how it's going to be. I don't hear any negative vibes. But yeah, I agree. But what I would do is if I were the chairman, the Republican chairman of the Judiciary Committee, I would break it wide open. I'd say this is stupid. They, They sit and extol how the court is the sole and final arbiter of constitutional interpretation. So yeah, I mean... If we now constitutionalize whether a man's a man, a woman's a woman, what's a marriage, what's a life, every aspect of election law is determined by the courts. Every aspect of immigration law is determined by the courts. So yeah, I mean, you better believe I want to know where they stand on that issue even more than I want to know where a president or a senator stands on the issue because it's with finality. You know, I'm sick of hearing all these And really, statements by both parties and the nominee. And again, I mean, she's playing the game. I get it. That, oh, you know, judges just determine the law, not politics. Give me a break. But they're saying every every aspect about politics ties into law or the Constitution. So therefore, they have the final say in every political decision. Meaning, if the courts are the final veto over any state or federal policy or statute, And that is universally binding on even non-litigants. 
and that self-executing is a rule of construction on the other branches of government, then, well, la-di-da, I mean, that's a super-duper legislature. That's a mixture of a judiciary, a veto power of an executive, and a legislature. And folks, it's not just the veto power that they have this ad hoc wrongly conceived super veto beyond a presidential or gubernatorial veto that they could veto any law and rip it out and strike down a statute or strike down a policy. You look at the election law cases, they're downright affirmatively and positively legislating. In other words, they're saying, oh, no, you have to give X number of days for voter registration and this sort of, you have to allow ballots like this. Ballots have to be made like that. So it's not just that they're like de facto ordering a certain outcome by foreclosing the ability of a state to do other things. They downright start ordering different things. So let's dispel this notion that courts aren't political. Courts are the only political branch. What everyone is missing really is more than just their erroneous view of the role of the courts, but their erroneous view as senators of their own body. The Senate Judiciary Committee, the Attorney General, Attorney General's office within the executive branch, both of them should engage in judicial review. Except for them, it's executive review or legislative review. Everyone has a, a, a responsibility to use their powers in concert with the Constitution. So yes, if you are the judicial branch and you have a plaintiff in front of you, you have the right to look at the Constitution for that case, even if it conflicts with the view of the other branches. We, I have never disputed that. But likewise, that goes around in a circle. It's not a linear line with the judiciary sitting on top. It goes around in a circle. If the executive branch doesn't like a rule that the judiciary is trying to mandate, and they say, look, I mean, I swore an oath to uphold the Constitution. I can only do it the way I see fit. Likewise, the legislature, we are only going to legislate in a way that we feel is in concert with the Constitution. We have the power of the purse, and we are only going to fund things that are in concert with that. So, you know, let me... Let me be balanced and fair in the way I present this because I'm not making right now a conservative or liberal argument or even a, you know, originalist versus living and breathing constitution uh, argument over particular clauses of the constitution. I am merely expressing the view of three coordinate separate but equal branches of government. Everyone's like, oh, we have checks and balances, separate branch. The judiciary has to be independent. But then they go on to explain a construct of the judiciary having the sole and final say over everything. Well, that's not independent. That's not coordinate. If the other branches don't get to do the same. So I'm going to give examples for you and walk you through this on both issues that we would want the courts to so-called strike down and that they would want to strike down. So the Democrats are very concerned that Amy Barrett could potentially be the fifth vote, and in most of these cases, it's not even true, she wouldn't be, but in their mind, the fifth vote in so-called striking down Roe and, and Obergefell and, and um, 
you know, guns and whatever. Obamacare, obviously. So let me just say one thing before I contrast that to all the things that they strike down and we should even up the score. But those cases aren't all equal. Abortion and Heller gun rights are an unequal playing field in terms of just the mechanics of what the court's doing. Let, let, let me be very clear about this. One, you're talking about the court striking down a state law, and one, you're talking about a court striking down a court opinion which struck down a state law. So in other words, with abortion, it's the courts messing with, let's just say for a lack of a better term, red state laws, they're the ones striking down. They're the ones getting the courts involved. In other words, if you want abortion and you're in California, you could do what you want. The state will likely uphold it. They certainly will, given the political bent of the state. And you can have your abortion. You want to prevent South Dakota, let's say, from regulating abortion. So you're the one getting the courts involved. So if anything, that's an example of what we're talking about, that they're going on offense. Let's talk about judicial offense and judicial defense. We're playing defense in the courts on abortion. They're the ones going on offense. Where we are going on offense, you would say, is with Obamacare and guns. Okay, because guns, it's blue states want to regulate guns, and we're going to the courts and saying you can't do that. Now, let me just say right off the bat that you do have to recognize there is a difference between an enumerated right and a BS right. Right? You can't shall not be infringed, means shall not be infringed. That is an individual right. Right? So th- there is a difference between running to a court when you're offended by an abstract, broad policy of a state versus where that policy directly harms you. I cannot defend myself. I can't open up my business because of the COVID fascism. I must wear, cover my lungs wherever I go. That is deeply personal. So I have a right to go to a court. But nonetheless, I am consistent in my view, and I always have been, that, look, the Constitution is clear. It has nothing to do with what Heller said and the court said. The Constitution is clear, and we should be fighting that. We should be fighting for the Constitution. But it's not because the court said it. So my view that the other branches have the right to interpret the Constitution the way they see fit, it applies to that too. So let me give you an example. Let me let me be even what I'm saying. You know how I always say that they, you know, they want to strike down our immigration policies. And I always say, like, a court can't do that. I mean, you could issue an opinion, but at the end of the day, the issuance of visas is an executive policy. And if statute gives the president authority to deny visas, and in some of these cases requires it of him, he has to follow the Constitution and the proper avenue of statute, which gives it to the political branches, not the judiciary. So, I mean, you as a state don't have the power to issue visas. That's an executive function. So, let me be consistent on on the on a case where we're trying to use the courts to go after them to be clear 
when we are going to the courts, we're not saying we're striking down. We are trying to grant relief to an individual plaintiff. I want to own a gun. Let me own a gun. I want to carry a gun. Let me carry a gun. Now, with that said, let's say, let's say, um, you know, we have five justices, which I think is is possible to affirm that Heller, when it discovers, you know, this individual right to bear arms, it doesn't just mean your home, but it means to bear in public. It means the right to carry. At least some sort of gun in some sort of way, you have a right to carry. And therefore, implicit in the court's decision is that a state has to issue a carry license. A state could just go and say, I'm not going to issue a license. Hey, you judge, you go issue it. That's a state function. Now, I would argue back if, as a conservative living in a blue state, I'd say, look, so fine, don't, don't issue a license. I'll carry without it. That's my right. If you don't want to go th- give me some sort of a process, then I'll do it on my own. Well, then we'll arrest you. Well, then I'll go to court and they'll apply that and I'll get off. In other words, it goes around in a circle. That's my point. So, like, they're like, oh, my God, you know, you might have Heller. It might, you know, foreclose on these blue states ability to regulate guns. Not really. They could still gum up the works and say, screw that. We're, we're going to the cops are going to go looking for you. Now, it would be wrong. It's against the Constitution, but they do have that power. And it's ultimately something that society needs to fight out. The courts are one avenue to help, but it's not the sole and final avenue. It's all three branches. It's the feds. It's the states. It's public opinion. It's media. Writing, speaking, protesting. It all it all works into it. That's the way it works. And believe me, the Democrats would do exactly that. That's the joke. They're so concerned, but they're feigning outrage because if 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 their stuff was ever so-called struck down, they would push back because you know we're already seeing that. We saw that in a couple of places with the corona fascism, where we got a couple of favorable court rulings against it. They did they did what they wanted. How do you think we got to where we did on Heller anyway? Where Heller has basically been repealed. And that leads me to my next point that a lot of people are missing. One of the points, and again, she's just being very cagey. She's not going to invite anything. But one of the points that I didn't like was when she was talking about the mechanics of how a case comes before the Supreme Court. She was trying to lay fears and, and you know, Lindsey Graham was coaching her, kind of walking her through this. Like, Democrats think like a judge just gets up one day and like, I'm going to reverse Roe, I'm going to reverse Obergefell. And she said, no, you have to have a valid case that has to come before the lower courts and you have to grant certiorari. And then she added a point that it's even stronger than that. It's even harder to overturn it because presumably if you have um, a, a litigation that that tries to militate against the premise of, let's say, Roe or Obergefell, a lower court would be bound by Rowan Obergefell, so it wouldn't get anywhere and it wouldn't make it to the Supreme Court. And that bothered me because that's exactly what's happening. The lower courts, it's a one-way street, as we always talk about. The Democrat judges on the lower courts, yeah, they'll dogmatically apply liberal Supreme Court precedent, but if you have conservative Supreme Court precedent, for lack of a better term, 
they have no problem overturning it. How do you think we got Obergefell or Roe to begin with? It was lower courts first discovering these rights where previous Supreme Courts denied them. In the case of gay marriage, there was a case in the Supreme Court in the 1970s out of Minnesota that was nine to nothing against it. So lower courts were just saying, screw that. And now they're going to turn around and say, oh, well, Obergefell's the law. This is the problem that conservatives are missing. And this is why nothing is going to change. And folks, this just happened today. Just as this hearing was going on, the Supreme Court denied Idaho's appeal of the Ninth Circuit once again in the case where the Ninth Circuit mandated that the Idaho Bureau of Prisons pay for the sex change operation of a sex offender, I'm not kidding you, in in prison. That if you don't cut his balls off, it violates the Eighth Amendment. Mind you, if we actually created a rule that anyone who's a sex offender we would cut his balls off, they would say, and, and rightfully so, as much as I'd want to do it, that it's cruel and unusual punishment and violates the Eighth Amendment. Now if someone requests that his balls be cut off and you don't do it, you're denying him care, a.k.a. in their view, violation of the Eighth Amendment. That is an insane novel view that violates the Supreme Court's precedent on um, on... Eighth Amendment, and by the way, is in conflict with, I believe, two other circuits have ruled the opposite in similar cases, and the Supreme Court allowed the Ninth Circuit to stand. So this is another problem with these judges, and as far as Amy, I mean, again, she's trying to be cagey. She might be really good on this. I don't know, and and again, that's part of the problem. We don't know, but very few are like Thomas, where they said, like I said yesterday with Obergefell, wait a minute, we need to bring this back up. If you are a constitutionalist on the Supreme Court and you see lower courts violating the Constitution, you better believe you have the obligation to expeditiously at the first opportunity grant cert in that case and overturn it. But again, these conservative judges, and and, and I mean legitimately conservative, that are bothered by their conscience. In other words, consciously they know it's wrong, but politically they're too scared So the easiest out for them is like, oh, you know, I'll just quietly allow the lower courts to screw it with us. So, you know, I don't have to overturn it, but I don't have to put my name on something unconstitutional. That is something that's a big problem. And if I were a conservative on the Senate Judiciary Committee, I would say, wait a minute. And I would point to a specific case and I'd say, look, you can't deny these are novel rights that the lower courts are creating often against Supreme Court precedent. Do you believe that that has to expeditiously be reversed so state laws that are that are totally valid are able to stand or not? But this is the point everyone is missing. This whole guessing game. It's only a problem because we made it that the courts strike down with finality laws. They strike down, whether it's conservative, whether it's liberal. Let's make it even. It's not true. I would point to the Democrats and I'd say, let's make a deal. You're right. If the Supreme Court so-called strikes down Obamacare, strikes down gun laws, we're going to continue to fight that out politically. But you know what? Likewise, hey, buddy, they go and strike down marriage laws. Life, pro-life laws, election laws. Like, this is the joke. They talk about, you know, courts interfering, oh, Obamacare. This is a a great piece um, at American Greatness by Pete Hutchinson. 
Judicial election interference threatens constitutional crisis. Notice, folks, every day you are seeing the courts issue an insane opinion. Pennsylvania Supreme Court extended the Commonwealth statutory time limits for counting ballots. A federal court extended Wisconsin's statutory deadline for voters to register and for election officials to process absentee ballots. Another, another federal judge in Atlanta extended Georgia's time requirements for returning mail ballots. Appellate courts, including the Supreme Court, have stayed some of these orders, but some are being implemented. For example, in Virginia and Nevada, state election officials have either consented to dubious lawsuit demands or unilaterally changed the voting laws. They are duty-bound to enforce. Under the Constitution, the method for conducting presidential elections is the sole purview of state legislatures. Judicial orders and state executive branch interference with the established statutory process intruded on a fundamental power delegated by the sovereign people to those legislatures. Courts simply do not have authority to run roughshod over states just because they disagree with state policy during a pandemic. State legislatures that take the Constitution seriously should and will defend their territory, their authority. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 gives state legislatures exclusive authority to establish the process for selecting presidential electors. State governors and election officials are bound by the legislature's procedures. The Supreme Court has held that courts have limited powers of review. Yet courts or election officials in many states are attempting to change state election laws by expanding deadlines, reducing voter identification requirements, and imposing sweeping vote-by-mail schemes. In most cases, those in positions cavalierly assume that election workers have the wherewithal to comply with alterations to systems involving a great many moving parts. Post-election judicial interference will make matters much worse. This is the problem. We're dealing with over 100 lawsuits demanding the alteration or elimination of state election integrity laws. This is the problem. And um, I'm not sure where we go from here. But the Democrats are sitting and yelling about, oh my gosh, like, oh, and with Obamacare again, here's the joke. There's a supermajority in President Trump would backfill all the main parts of Obamacare. Unfortunately, much to our chagrin, they agree with it. Now, I've explained before, the court isn't going to do that anyway. But even if they would, they would do that. The guns, we all know, based on the first Heller and McDonald, it didn't work. The blue states are passing more gun control laws than ever. Right? This, This is the joke. How many times have we benefited from striking down their laws? Very few. They have altered our society by striking down every aspect of our lawful, you know, laws duly passed by Congress, state legislatures. And most importantly, they're not just rendering elections moot by determining the outcome of every political issue, but the courts are making it that Republicans can't even win elections because they're siding with the ACLU and the Soros organizations on all of the ballot harvesting schemes and and resetting the dates of elections, literally ordering things around. 
So, hey, buddy, you're concerned about the power of the courts. Let's shake on it. This is where conservatives are so stupid. Instead, they're dogmatically defending judicial supremacism. All Democrats are going to interfere with judicial supremacism. Don't don't try to interfere with uh, uh, separate uh, distinct powers of the court. They're stupid. They're so stupid. I would trade them the few benefits we've gotten from the strike down game over their thing. And and again, what was so uncanny watching and listening to the exchanges, it's like, well, well, we don't make decisions. It's just when a case comes up. And 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 basically she's like, we don't wake up one day and try to make policy. It's just when there's a case in front of us. And I what I put out on Twitter was the same way they don't make policy without a case, they don't make policy with a case. Right, our constitutional republic is that tenuous that if you get a, if you don't get a litigation in a court, then we don't have a life altering decision. But if you could somehow get it in court, then we have a life altering decision. No, they decide a case. But if they want to make a construct for the entire country and other branches of government based on that, that would establish a political rule around that case. No, that's fair game. This is not a judicial North Korea. That is utter nonsense. If the founders meant for the courts to be the final veto, they would have said so. They would have put it in the Constitution, and they wouldn't just have like some tenuous avenue for them to get involved. They would say, look, Congress passed a law, it goes to the president, and it goes for another round to the courts to, to, to ratify it. And that was somewhat of a hypothesis when they were groping around in those July hot summer days in Philadelphia, 1787, how they were going to create the checks and balances, that was Madison's idea of a council of revision. Now, he rejected that. But moreover, as I've said many times, even under that hypothesis, that was the second, that was the first check, not a second. In other words, that was when you had the legislature and then you didn't yet have a presidential veto. They were constructing what the veto, what the check on the legislature would look like. So they had this idea of maybe the Supreme Court and the president having a joint veto power. There was never an idea that you'd have, it goes to Congress, then the president gets a veto, then the Supreme Court gets a separate veto. Moreover, as I've noted before, under that original plan of the Council of Revision, the legislature was insanely powerful and needed a more robust check. In several ways. Number one, it was unicameral, was not bicameral because they didn't have the, um, you know, the Sherman compromise between New Jersey and uh, and Virginia yet. And basically, you had unicameral because remember, the fact that you have to, in order to even get to the president's desk, you have to pass the House and the Senate. I mean, God, like the overwhelming majority of laws pass one and not the other, right? There are so many things that would be law today if you had unicameral legislature. This was especially true before the 17th Amendment when the Senate was not popularly elected by the people but by the state legislatures. So it's almost like they were two different bodies. It's it's not like a legislature. Like the House and Senate were different universes. The House represented the people. The Senate represented the states. So, you know, that's number one. It, it was unicameral back then. I mean, not, it never was, but I mean, under that original um, the theory that, the, that they were 
toying with in, in those initial weeks. And then also it had an interesting wrinkle that the Congress had a veto power over state legislature. So a state legislature could pass on, they could veto it. So they had tremendous power, unicameral. Then they veto the states. All right, okay, that's Congress. Now where's our check? So that's where Madison thought, okay, maybe we have um, the president and the Supreme Court veto. And then no, they rejected that. And eventually it was, it was a presidential veto and they divided up Congress, made it weaker, bicameral, took out the veto over the states and that's it. There's no constitutional veto of a court. A court could grant relief to a plaintiff. Now, what if that flies in the face of a policy or a statute of another branch of government? Well, that was Marshall's idea of, well, look, you know, we're a separate branch of government. If we believe it's unconstitutional, we could say so. And that's fine. But it was obvious that the other branches have that power. And if the Supreme Court and the other branches want to create their own rules, and based on novel constitutional ideas, certainly it, it doesn't get off the ground. Let me once again read to you. I've read this before, but it's worth revisiting now. The letter of, um, what's his name? Lincoln's Attorney General. July 13th, 1861 about habeas corpus. Everyone knows how Lincoln um, suspended habeas corpus in Maryland several other times, really. And, you know, the people were just very ticked off about this. Now, the irony here is, as I've noted before, you know, we live in an era with corona fascism where we're saying there's emergency powers to suspend fundamental rights. And as Robert Jackson always noted, Justice Jackson, there are there are no su- such exceptions. There is one exception to fundamental rights, the Constitution, and that is actually habeas corpus during a time of rebellion. Now, the, the disagreement was over whether Congress had that power or the president had that power. But ironically, that power did exist to suspend habeas corpus during a time of rebellion. So this is Attorney General Edward Bates. He was previously a member of the House of Representatives, he was Lincoln's AG. On July 5th, 1861, he wrote a letter to the Speaker of the House defending the decision against the courts because the you know the courts and Roger Taney were ticked off and they were ruling it's unconstitutional, didn't have the power. And he wrote the following. We ought not to say that our system is perfect for its defects are obvious. Our fathers, having divided the government into coordinate departments, did not even try to create an arbiter among them to adjudge their conflicts and keep them within their respective bounds. They were left by design, I suppose, each independent and free to act out its own granted powers without any ordained legal superior professing the power to revise and reverse its action. And this with the hope that the three departments, mutually co-equal and independent, would keep each other within their proper spheres by their mutual antagonism, that is, by the system of checks and balances to which our fathers were driven at the beginning by their fear of the unity of power. And I just want to stop there and just say, after reading this, you can imagine the absurdity of saying, you know, going from mutual antagonism to the other two branches, like, hey, Supreme Court, whatever you say, and therefore, prospectively, when we you know 
confirm someone to the Supreme Court. We have to know. I mean, well, where are you going to stand? Because once you get on there and you just flatulate from your rear end, I mean, uh, there's nothing we can do. I mean, you you said a man's a woman. Uh, abortion is in the Constitution. I mean, you know, 50 days of early voting. Uh, you know, post-voting now. Uh, the election really could be revised to November 10th. I mean, there's nothing we can do. I mean, it's absurd. Everyone's missing the point. We... No one understands the ABCs of our constitutional republic. Again, it's not to say that a court doesn't have the power and sometimes the justification with a legitimate plaintiff to rule on behalf of that plaintiff, even if that ruling conflicts with the other branches of government and their interpretation of the Constitution. But that power goes around in a circle. Anyway, let me continue. In this view of the subject, it is quite possible for the same identical question to come up legitimately before each one of the three departments and be determined in three different ways and each decision to stand irrevocably binding upon the parties to each case and that for the simple reason that the departments are coordinate and there is no ordained legal superior with power to revise and reverse their decisions. To say that the departments of our government are coordinate is to say that the judgment of one of them is not binding upon the other two as to the judgments and principles involved in the judgment. It binds only the parties to the case decided. But if admitting that the departments of government are coordinate, it be still contended that the principles adopted by one department in deciding a case properly before it are binding upon another department, that obligation must of necessity be reciprocal. That is, if the president be bound by the principles laid down by the judiciary, so also is the judiciary bound by the principles laid down by the president. And thus we shall have a theory of constitutional government flatly contradicting itself. Departments coordinate and co-equal, and yet reciprocally subordinate to each other? That cannot be. The several departments, though, um, there's a typo here, though far from so- sovereign, are free and independent, in the exercise of the limited granted limited powers granted to them respectively by the Constitution, our government indeed as a whole is not vested with the sovereignty and does not possess all the powers of the nation. It has no powers but such as are granted by the Constitution, and many powers are expressly withheld. The nation certainly is co-equal with all other nations and has equal powers, but it has not chosen to delegate all its powers to this government in any or all of its departments. The government as a whole is limited and limited in all its departments. It is the special function of the judiciary to hear and determine cases, not to establish principles nor settle questions so as to conclude any person, but the parties and previous to the cases of judged. Its powers are specifically granted and defined by the Constitution, Article 3, Section 2. He goes on to quote that part of the Constitution. Um... And, and then he says, and that is the sum of its powers, ample and efficient for all the purposes of distributive d- justice among individual parties, but powerless to impose rules of action and of judgment upon the other departments. Indeed, it is not itself bound by its own decisions, for it cannot and often does overrule and disregard them. I mean, that's the joke. It's like, you know, oh, they could overturn the other branches. But then that decision is binding once they do it, except if that court decides to revisit it, then they could. I mean, it's stupid. Think about it. No no one, I mean, these are the smartest lawyers in the room, judges, judicial nominees, uh, lawyers in the Senate Judiciary Committee, attorneys general. 
They don't get what, what, what Lincoln and Edward Bates understood. If you're going to tell me that a court could grant judgment to a plaintiff, and, and we're not too far off from this because the courts have basically done this, but let's just make it black and white for a minute. Let's say there's a case where a court grants uh, um, standing to people from Somalia and Afghanistan to sue to come into the country. And the court issues a rule and they say, you know what? This is not who we are as a people. As a people, the world has changed. And based on the world we live in, immigration laws are unconstitutional. And it's unconstitutional to deny entry of any of our global citizens of 8 billion people to come into the world. Okay, let's say a court did that and it was upheld by the Ninth Circuit and, and, and it was upheld by at least five justices on the Supreme Court. Are you going to tell me that the other branches of government, the, the legislature must only pass laws on immigration in concert with that principle? They must fund the issuance of such visas and that the executive branch has to issue them. This is the slippery slope they won't answer. Is there no limit to the power of the judiciary? Are there no limits whatsoever? Oh, Daniel, of course there are. But then they go on to explain a scheme where clearly there are no limits. That's the problem. I mean, I mean, think about it. A court literally just happened today and the Supreme Court was fine with it. Could say that if you don't pay to cut a prisoner's balls off, it violates the Eighth Amendment. That is literally the case. I am not exaggerating. It's not hyperbole. It's not some like complicated statutory scheme. It's straight up. They're saying it's a constitutional right. They're saying it's Eighth Amendment. That's what the Ninth Circuit said. There's no nuance to that case. And it's not even a matter of like you have to afford him the opportunity to go to a clinic and get that done on his own. No, you have to pay for it too. That, that is the case. Could you think of anything more absurd? Is that the law? Does the legislature of Idaho have to fund that? Does the governor and the head of the Bureau of Prisons there have to let the guy have to have to arrange that meeting and find a doctor to take out the scalpel? No, that's separation of powers. I don't get why I'm the only human being alive that is making this point. So whether it's a, a, a judge who wants to say, let's do right and left again, I'm striking down immigration laws and you have to issue visas to these illegals at the border or these pseudo asylum seekers, or you have to issue a right to carry permit. They might be right or wrong in varying cases as to their view of the Constitution. But at the end of the day, another branch of government, an executive, whether it's a governor or president, and their subordinates are not compelled based on that decision. Now, they're compelled by their personal oath to the Constitution. They need to follow the Constitution. But look, if they see it different, they see it different. And if you think they're acting absurd... You punish them. You vote them out of office. That's the thing. Like, imagine if I told people the opposite, that the political branches could do what they want and there's zero avenue for the courts to ever get involved in any way. But like, Daniel, that, that's tyranny. But you know what? That would be actually less tyrannical 
than the system we have now because it's not because at least there's a simple recourse. It's called elections. And even more than that, you have legislative debates. There's a lot more input. In other words, the, the courts, like it's behind closed doors. There's nothing you can do. Public opinion, public debate, hearings, like things, things, you know, you have a lot more input in the legislative process. The courts, we're told, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. Except to try to somehow do the impossible task of amending the Constitution. And ironically, ironically, guess what? They could always come and say, I don't like the way you did it. I'm striking down your amendment. This is where all the problem flows from. If you're going to tell me the unelected, life-tenured branch could decide any political question with finality, whether it's a more conservative decision, whether it's a more liberal decision, and it's decided with finality, yeah, then you better believe we're going to have all this acrimony about the Supreme Court. And it's funny, the irony is lost on everyone. Like, Amy Barrett got up there, as all the... Nominee say, look, you know, by statute, I have to recuse myself. Recusal is governed by statute. By statute, I have to with this and that. I can't say where I am on an issue. Who writes those statutes? Congress. What do you mean? Separate branch of government. Uh, the, the, the Supreme Court could do what they want. No. What do you think Article 3, Section 2, Exceptions and Regulations Clause? That Congress can make exceptions and regulations to the entire structure of the court. Like, everyone's debating packing the courts, but, the, but no one disputes that Congress does have that power. Oh, you're, you're, you're getting, how dare you get involved in the, um, you know, violate the independence of the court. What do you mean? Well, we've had it for a hundred, we have had nine justices for 150 years. Okay. But you admit we could change that. If they meant for the courts to be supreme, why would Congress have... Why would the framers, A, have not given the courts a direct avenue to decide cases with finality? Why is it so tenuous with a case and a controversy? And number two, on the back end, why would they allow Congress to strip them of jurisdiction and define their jurisdiction? Jefferson and his allies in Congress punished Marshall and chucked an entire Supreme Court term in 1802. They canceled it for them. You can't meet that year. They are the weakest branch of government. And, and precisely because they don't stand for election. So they had to be the way. They couldn't be the strongest because that would be tyrannical. This is a simple point lost on 99% of even conservative people in, in, in legal circles. It drives me nuts. Now, the American people don't like what the Democrats are planning with packing the courts, and that's why they're cornered on the issue and they don't want to answer it, but not so much because you're you're messing with the nostalgia of nine justices, just because they understand that they want to use the courts as a tool to remake society, and people oppose that. But I think there's a more direct way for the Republicans to attack this rather than saying, oh, you better keep the independence of the courts. Uh, don't, don't try to find out where the justices stand on issues and don't try to manipulate. No, just say it straight up. The courts don't have this power to begin with. Hey, Democrats, you could put 50 people on the Supreme Court. And yes, there's an important role for courts. Courts are an indispensable part of our system. But not on political issues. Most cases, 
that go to the court are unanimous. They're not acrimonious. And the system tends to work when they're individual plaintiffs, they're boring cases. They don't implicate a political or social question. And that's fine. I'm not, I'm not talking about abolishing the court system. Most of the work that the courts do, A, is very nonpartisan, it's bipartisan, nonpartisan, it's boring, and it's not political. But the certain percentage that is designed to implicate by the parties and the third-party organizations that litigate this stuff to create political decisions, sometimes there's an important avenue where real legitimate rights are at stake, and you have a right to go to a court. But again, to say that that speaks with finality and other branches have no avenue is is just absurd. Anyway, so much on crime and the virus, immunity, I want to talk about, things like that. <laughs> we, we put it all on the table just on the courts today, but I, I felt it was important just to do a review of what is judicial review, what's judicial supremacism, the difference between them, what it means to have separate branches of government, and how all of the fights we're having today over the judicial nomination process stem from this fallacy you can always send me your questions to dharowitz at blazemedia.com discuss this and other issues at our facebook pages Hurwitz citizen sanctuary miniman speakeasy follow me at rm conservative on twitter folks till tomorrow god bless y'all and thank you for listening